Check, check. Hey, it's Colin. It is quite late on Thursday night. We didn't do a podcast this week. Slaney had some things going on. He was quite busy. And that actually kind of works out for me because there was something I've been uh, thinking I wanted to to share with you. And now that we're officially in December, uh, the timing is really appropriate. Um, so like six months ago, I shared this other short story with you, which in fact wasn't entirely short at all. Um, if you scroll back in the feed, you could you could listen to that. It's essentially uh, a little musing that brings together a few of my interests and also the fact that we were newly in a global pandemic, which is now not so novel. Um, and so that particular piece of writing, uh, well, I, I guess I'm proud of it. In general, it is it is aged quite poorly. Um, and, and in fact, this will as well age quite poorly uh, because it's so set in the Christmas season. You have like three weeks to in, enjoy this next hour. <laughs> um, but that's okay. Uh, Christmas is, is something I've, I've written about before. It's something I like to write about because I'm intrinsically a, a sentimental creator. Um, and so in lieu of, of talking about any number of interesting pop cultural things with Slaney this week, and, and believe me, I do want to get his thoughts on David Chang becoming the first uh, celebrity to win a million dollars on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And and by the way, I have lots of thoughts on that. Congratulations to him, but let's not treat it like it's like the greatest accomplishment in the history of uh, of television. Uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire has gotten ludicrously easy, insanely easy. And by the way, the questions are are, are too verbose nowadays. It's way too hard to get through your, your phone a friend question without having to paraphrase your question. Otherwise, you eat up 18 of your 30 seconds in the phone a friend. And then there's the really, really big uh, corporate entertainment factoid that happened today. Today's Thursday. Uh, Warner Brothers just up and announced that, oh yeah, on top of Wonder Woman 1984, which is coming out on streaming as well as in theaters on Christmas Day 2020. By the way, our entire 2021 movie slate going to come out on streaming as well. So in Canada, I guess that'll be a, a crave option, but this is no small deal, man. Major studio, Dune, uh, The Matrix 4, um, uh, Suicide Squad, In the Heights, I- incredible number of like big budget movies. Now, does this signal a paradigm shift in the way we consume entertainment? In a more down-to-earth context, it kind of just is a product of what's been happening before us and what we've all seen happening in front of us and have have contributed towards for a very long time. I think it, it is important we acknowledge that Warner Brothers is owned by AT&T. They're a telecommunications company and they also um, sell home bandwidth. So they're not like, <laughs> they're not falling on a sword by having people watch big movies at home. They're not going to lose as much, but it'd be interesting to see if the other big studios uh, fall in line. It'll be so fascinating if, you know, going forward, a Star Wars movie um, comes out on Disney plus at the same time it comes out in theaters. It's just, it's, it's such a weird time. The pandemic has only accelerated. Anyway, all these things that I, I desperately want to talk with Slaney about, but he's not available. So instead, uh, a different version of a podcast this week, uh, a short story about Christmas, um, something that I just kind of whipped up in the last few weeks. And I really hope you like it. I will say I'm not particularly, um, thrilled with, some of the production quality, I'm not sure why. I didn't really seem to have the mojo of presentation when I was putting this together. But um, if you can, if you can tolerate the subtle sounds of saliva sizzling on my tongue, then um, I suppose you'll be able to feel some semblance of Yuletide spirit. Otherwise, uh, I don't know. Send me a Kleenex, and we'll catch up in the new year. Comment tu vois ça entre nous? This is a Christmas piece of cake written by me, Colin Sweets. Siobhan and I had a seasonal tradition, a film viewing ritual involving what we called sneaky Christmas movies that always began immediately after Remembrance Day. With no ethical or sensible reservations still to withhold us, we allowed each other to fall blissfully backwards into the most wonderful time of the year, registered trademark. Our hands crossed over our chests, candy canes in our fists, and songs in our hearts. 
We were holiday spirit enablers of one another, and others found it sickening, even contemptible. But we had systematic methods by which to defend our investments. No indulgence was to be given to erecting Christmas trees nor other electricity-requiring decorations until, at the earliest, 12.01 a.m. on December the 1st. Leading up to this time, second-tier Yuletide adornments were granted, per our self-imposed regulations, up to two weeks earlier. These included seasonal greenery, winter-themed doormats and teacups, nutcrackers and snowmen, but not yet reindeer. Festive music was allowed in the home and vehicle between November 21st and December 27th, and, as mentioned, the viewing of Christmas movies began as early as the 12th, but always at first with sneaky Christmas movies, followed by a gradual transition to the more on-the-nose essentials. A sneaky Christmas movie is a film that doesn't feel exclusively or intentionally like a Christmas movie, but is greatly enhanced by its narrative use of Christmas. However, for it to be considered a sneaky Christmas movie, the Christmas aspect must be functionally extractable. Holiday terminology must not appear in the title or IMDb summary of the film. Edward Scissorhands is a sneaky Christmas movie, for example. Also, Catch Me If You Can and Batman Returns. Die Hard is not sneaky enough to qualify. Gremlins is not sneaky enough. The Robin Williams movie Hook is one Siobhan and I could never agree on. She argued that the Christmas themes of Hook could be removed with the plot still intact because there is any number of reasons why a family might visit their granny in the winter. I maintain it's not the lighting nor the carols that make it a Christmas movie, but the certain truth that in Hook, Robin Williams plays more of a Scrooge than a Pan. This is intrinsically a debate over how early it would be appropriate to watch this movie, not whether or not we should watch it at all, which we don't, because it isn't great. There are far too many to cycle through, even when you start so early in the year, and if I started any later, what movies would I be forced to bump? The Family Man? Kiss Kiss Bang Bang? Bloody Harry Met Sally? No. The movies must show, else how can my holiday season maintain any semblance of normalcy? It is because of this commitment that I find myself watching Eyes Wide Shut, Alone in a Lover's Suite, just a 30-minute train ride from Gay Paris, if not exactly in it, per se. Siobhan didn't come, and given that she ended things just days before I asked her if she was still coming anyway, I guess I can understand why. But the tickets were non-refundable, so I ate about half the expense and sold Siobhan's on Facebook Marketplace for a song. I couldn't stand to give up the trip entirely, and anyway, I can probably use the time to clear my head. So I came by myself. Four weeks abroad, experiencing Christmas in one of the oldest and most beautiful cities on earth. I really thought she'd be all for it. At first, I thought she was. But then somewhere between Labor Day and Halloween, something shifted and she became increasingly burdened by work. Her long days and exhaustive meetings were casting shadows over our planning. The change was finally unignorable when she eventually admitted that she wasn't really feeling the Christmas spirit this year. It's early, I said defensively. Hmm, she agreed. And on November 5th, it was quite early by most people's standards. But in the five years we'd been celebrating the holidays together, we'd always been nativitally ravenous by this point. I knew something was up. On November 8th, she told me she wanted to take Christmas off, and I misunderstood. I know that's something people say when they're overworked, but that's not realistically feasible. I then unsubtly invoked a favorite reference of hers by stating, Christmas is all around us. No, you're not quite hearing me, she said. I'm suggesting we take Christmas off. Christmas happens whether or not we have some kind of delusional pact. No, no, Lou she said. It's not that we should take Christmas off. We should take Christmas off. At least until the new year. I have too much happening at work and I really don't have the energy to entertain all the festivities, not to the degree that you expect. I was still too confused to effectively deconstruct this veiled judgment. Later on, I wished I'd positioned that our annual traditions were always for the both of us. It was never just some favor she was doing me by putting up with it. Instead, in the moment, I said, what about the cake? She sighed. 
I'm very sure you'll have a wonderful Christmas without one silly coconut cake. What about my mum? I begged. Your mother, too, who has always very decidedly been underwhelmed at best by my highest efforts, will make do quite well without a coconut cake to politely sample and then replace with something else. There's always too much food anyway, Lou. Not recognizing that this had nothing to do with coconut cake or Christmas or Siobhan's work or my mother, I latched on to all I could grasp and I shouted, Some people would be grateful to have a bevy of delicious treats to enjoy during family holidays, but I guess that's not you. Not my finest. I guess you're right, she said. Two days later, I asked her if she would still come to France and then Scotland and Hungary. This was less than 20 hours before she would have had to be en route to the airport. I thought I was being clear, she said gently. No, you were, I said. But we could still go. Not everything has to change, right? It does, though, because I'm very busy at work and I can't just disappear to Europe for weeks with my ex-boyfriend. This really stung. I had registered the breakup at this point and was coming to accept that taking Christmas off more than likely, in fact, meant taking all Christmases off forever. But to be referred to as an ex-boyfriend was a new milestone. What am I supposed to do with your tickets? I don't know. Sell them online. It's really not my problem, Lou. I didn't plan for this trip. You did. At this point, I'll get pennies compared to what they're worth. There's always someone looking to run away at Christmas time. I'm sure you'll do okay. There was a long pause before she added, I'm really sorry, and hung up the phone. In a fury, I dialed her back. Yep, she said. Will you at least make my mother a Christmas cake? I asked. Surely she's not to blame for any of this. Just make her a cake, won't you? The next pause was even longer. Goodbye, Lou. And click. It turned out we were both right. Finding a buyer for Siobhan's half of the bookings was easy, and my compensation was indeed minuscule. They went to a patchouli-smelling free spirit named Magnus, with hair long enough to braid and a single duffel bag with which I was forced to share as much travel time as I was he. He was young and sweet, but dumb and slovenly. On the first flight, he asked for the rest of my pretzels, and I said I was saving them, but then I dumped them in a receptacle by a magazine stand. At that moment, Magnus was staring up at the pigeons in the rafters, transfixed as if they were angels sharing a cheese plate on the terrace of the pearly gates. I could only imagine what he'd think of the Louvre. Safe travels, I told him. I'll probably see you around. Eh, you mean bon voyage, right? Magnus said, betraying himself. Right, I said, feeling exposed. He wandered off, not with more direction than I, but amply more confidence. It was mild in the city, and there was a smell of old I didn't especially recognize. By this time of year at home, there's a typical aromatic pause, a fragrant strike between the last birth of natural life and the rich capitalist waft of mint and cinnamon and evergreen. I had no way of knowing this for certain, but the smell of Paris felt as though it never took days off. There were no discernible signs of Christmas just yet, but it was early. I think I had anticipated the city of love being more in step with me and my festive exuberance, but once I'd arrived, it no longer felt like my place to have an opinion on the subject whatsoever. And for all I knew, the many people around were all discussing the holidays, and I simply didn't speak the language. Along the 8th, indeed, there was something angelic about the birds. Maybe Siobhan would have liked the Arc de Triomphe, but I wasn't sure. She would have been curious about the pastries. I could presume that much. Siobhan usually didn't like other people's pastries, but she never missed an opportunity to test her consistency. It didn't behoove me to challenge this, because I so benefited from the abundance of homemade baked goods, especially around Christmas. Truth be told, I was missing her strudel as much as her skin. In an attempt to satisfy my craving, I tracked one down in a coffee shop called Café Oberkampf, and I only remembered after buying it that strudels are German and that this might not have been the best place to enjoy my first authentically French experience. But it was quite delicious. Siobhan might have said it was trying too hard. Her high standard was not of delusion. She really was quite talented. 
As part of our carefully strategized holiday season, she always committed dozens of hours and hundreds of dollars to baking cookies and squares and various barks for our co-workers, neighbors, and friends. While wearing her bring-us-some-figgy-pudding apron, she only opted for instrumental carols, so not to break her concentration, but she was open to an occasional interruption for jolly dancing. Still, I always tried not to get too in the way, in particular when she was making her annual coconut cake. It's funny how traditions develop. We tend to clench at frivolities in an effort to retain an elusive feeling we once had in their presence. Like the t-shirt my friend Doyle only ever wears on his birthday. He doesn't enjoy his birthday because of this t-shirt, but he always wears it just in case that's where the magic is stored. Similarly, Siobhan made this incredible coconut cake the first Christmas Eve we spent together, which also happened to be when she met my family for the first time. She was desperately nervous, and she tried this new recipe, which I pointed out might be risky. In fact, the cake turned out beautifully, as did the entire holiday. My sisters loved her. Dad thought she was funny. And my mother couldn't stop saying, albeit only in private, that she seemed like a very bright young lady. And of course, Siobhan was funny and lovable and a bright young lady, and the cake was merely an extension of those things. But it was decided quite early the next year that she absolutely must make the same cake at Christmas again, and the cake somehow became this totem necessary for a successful family integration. This would have been fine, except it was difficult to make, and it caused Siobhan a lot of stress. Over the years, she would suggest perhaps making something different for Christmas dessert, and invariably my family would insist that the coconut cake was much too excellent to miss. Over time, she came to see this tradition for what it was, a crutch. Thankfully, she and I had many other Christmas traditions to cherish unto ourselves. An interesting thing about streaming services is that the content available to a subscriber is limited by federal licensing, and the user is not entitled to the same exact options from country to country. When I arrived at the hotel and accessed my personal Netflix account, I was annoyed to discover the menu was different, and my My List had been reduced to only the movies I'd reserved at home that were also available to French users. This would fiercely disrupt my sneaky Christmas movie schedule which was a living document and ever in flux, but also fragile. I was this close to bitterly watching Home Alone entirely too early when a Christmas miracle happened and a press of the wrong button changed the input to cable mode and I found myself watching the orgy scene from Eyes Wide Shut. The Yule degree of this movie had precisely the sneakiness I required at this stage, and it was being broadcast in French, but I managed to access the English subtitles. My initial observations were that the French are indeed far more liberal about sexuality. And also the actor who dubbed Tom Cruise's lines had a more seductive voice than he. I laid on my stomach with my feet on the pillows, and I tried my best to engage with only what felt normal. There I was, alone in a foreign country, at the beginning of my favorite season, lacking my favorite person with whom to share it. And even upon returning, I would have to reckon with the new differences. I would see my family, but Siobhan would make no appearance, far less a coconut cake. At this moment, I had my first sneaky Christmas movie, my first SCM of the year, and I had to read it as well as watch it. But that was as close as I could get. The next morning, I bore a healthy amount of concern over the pronunciation of croissant, at home, you're free to drool out some backwoods croissant. Or if you're sophisticated, croissant. But I knew there would be some special affectation I ought to at least attempt, some kind of Parisian dialectical je ne sais quoi. And I badly wanted one, but more so I wanted to order one correctly. I allowed this anxiety as my chief preoccupation as I readied before heading down to the lobby and discovering the breakfast was a buffet, and that the French way of using tongs was essentially no different from mine. My first properly local confectionery was sufficient, but possibly a mass import. For the first time, it was a very good thing Siobhan wasn't there with me. And the mediocrity of that first breakfast became a sort of benchmark of neutrality for all of my following experiences. Every bite I ate, beverage I sipped, avenue I strolled, an alleged masterpiece I encountered, was either better or worse than the buffet suites at L'Hotel Saint-Auguste. I visited all the essentials, did all the necessary things for a first-time tourist, and most of them were quite grand. 
An amusing ping-pong of expectation has happened with the Mona Lisa, where, for a time, the general reaction was that she was smaller and less extravagant than the reputation preceding her, but since that particular reaction circulated so widely, she's come back around, and I'm pleased to report she's really quite lovely. If you can ignore all the other pushy visitors, that is. The lawns in front of the Eiffel Tower were somewhat consumed by scaffolding and construction barricades. One would have had to be quite insistent to bother with a picnic there. And anyway, the very premise of the tower had me a bit lonely. The transit, I'm quite positive, does not make sense, and I'll leave it at that. While overall my days among the lights were pleasant, the most consistent enjoyment I found was in nightly viewings of increasingly less sneaky Christmas movies. I found a cafe near the train station where I managed to connect to Wi-Fi, secure a VPN, and access basically any film I wanted. With this system up and running, I began to feel more at home, just as it became time to ship off to Glasgow, to which there is no direct line. You're led to believe once you're in Europe that every little country is a mere train ride away, but in practice, it's not that simple. I had entrusted Magnus with his own responsibility over the travel itinerary, so it was none of my concern when he didn't arrive to fill his seat on the plane. It was good news for me because I had extra space to my left, and anyway, I wasn't looking forward to the small talk, having planned to watch another film download during the flight. It was eyes wide shut for the second time that year. Even with English subtitles, it didn't yet feel like it was officially checked off my list. It's such an unusual movie to consider essential Christmas viewing, I know, but it's because of that tonal contrast I consider it a healthy break. It's a diversion from all the gooey nostalgia. And I've seen it enough times that its eroticism can't scandalize me anymore, but on the airplane I was compelled to tilt the screen of my laptop so to prevent any misconstrued hysteria from onlookers. It helped that the seat to my left was empty. I did mentally play through a scenario in which I was forced to explain to a member of the flight crew that I was innocently watching a very well-known movie, a Warner Brothers film, a Kubrick film. And in my imagination, I slipped in that it was in fact Stanley Kubrick's last film, don't you know? But even then, it didn't appear to beguile. That's an interaction I've had often in real life. I'll try to share my amusement over some stuffy bit of movie trivia, and the response will fall short of polite acknowledgement. Not to say I have no one to indulge me. I tried writing a movie of my own once, a sneaky Christmas movie, in fact. And it was never filmed, obviously, but it did have a respectable little run as a one-act play at our local theater. I submitted the script to a friend of mine who had a connection to the company, and, as I was told, they were pleased to be able to stage something holiday-themed that they wouldn't have to pay through the nose to license. My movie-turned-play was a two-hander, an essentially one-scene conversation piece about two men whose professional lives have been defined by the commercialism of Christmas, commiserating over their shared cynicism on the matter. It was titled Burl and Thurl, and it featured a fictionalized Burl Ives, American actor well-known for his rendition of the song Holly Jolly Christmas, engaging with a guest on his radio program, and the guest is a fictionalized Thurl Ravenscroft, the American actor best known for singing You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch. And I admit the idea for the story was born completely out of a funny title, but I insist there's nothing wrong with that. Anyway, there's a moment where Thurl says to Burl, the Grinch is meant to be this charming metaphor about what's too often forgotten about Christmas. He's an embodiment of skepticism in the face of the capitalist agenda, and that's all well and good, but... Then we use these morals to sell merchandise and ad time, and I get royalty checks, but only in January. And then Burl says to Thurl, That's right, but how do you know that's the lesson Dr. Seuss intended upon? And Thurl says, Because I've watched the film, and I've read the book to my children. And Burl says, Sounds to me like the message was conveyed one way or another. Anyway, it ends with the two men wishing each other a holly jolly Christmas, and the newspaper said my writing had a ruminant satirical bite which was meant as a compliment, but I found it conflicting because I thought I was being sincere. I'm no Stanley Kubrick, or Dr. Seuss, that's for sure. Siobhan was supportive of the play at every stage, and she made candy cane fudge for the opening night gala. This was several years ago, and I hadn't written anything since. It was now the second half of November, and I was relieved to see Christmas lights glimmering through the fog as we touched down in Scotland. I had three objectives— to drink scotch, eat shortbread, and to see both the Blair and Balmoral castles. Perhaps that's four objectives. 
Balmoral felt obligatory. It's an in-service residence for the royal family, and when vacant, can be entered. Blair Castle is less for the fanny pack clad, such as many of the recurring background figures along my highland trek. I was just so terribly fond of its pictures, the edging of its gables looked as though they had been snipped with special art class scissors in my childhood, and the angles reminded me of Lego. Even more than Mona Lisa, it did not disappoint. Balmoral was a longer journey and ultimately more rigid an experience, but the ballroom was a sight worth seeing. There I could quietly pretend I was in an episode of The Crown, which is not nothing. But all the pepper pot turrets and aristocratic legacy in the world could never have outshone the whiskies recommended by a Scotsman who truly knew what he poured. I made my ignorance my persona and allowed the avuncular bartender at the base of my hotel full jurisdiction over what I might enjoy best. His name was Kerry, and he could tell you everything about the process, from harvesting the barley to smoking the barrels to the proper way to let it coat your tongue. I just wanted guidance on how to order, and he nailed the assignment. He must have come away from our arrangement with more of my money than I did, but I don't begrudge him. He earned his pay if not only through his service, as well by hearing all about my woes and even once intervening when I briefly considered phoning Siobhan. He warned me about the roaming fees. Lou, you already have one tab growing unruly, he said. But I realize now his subtext had more to do with preserving my dignity. I guess I kind of loved Carrie. The only thing I can say against Scotland was that shortbread would appear to be about the same everywhere. It's fine. Buttery but dry, Surely I ate enough of it to be entitled to a comprehensive opinion. My favorite night of this leg involved being swept up in a massive throng of locals going a-wassling. Not in years have I been party to such a merry mob, and yet the atmosphere was so familiar to the others, with their circulating cookie tins and thermoses and stacks of foam cups, I could feel my signature reserve flake away. About half the carols were new to me, and verily hieroglyphic to the untrained ear, but a stranger passed me a well-handled paper folder of lyric sheets so I could follow along, and it was still a challenge, but I was having the time of my life. It was cold and damp, but that didn't matter either. When I awoke in the morning, I was briefly surprised by my lack of a hangover, but then I realized I barely drank. The music still with me. I made my way down the avenue to the coffee window I'd been visiting daily, and managed to hold on to this much-needed sense of cheer just until my cup was about half empty, and I received a text message from Siobhan. Back home, it was 4.30 a.m. Hope you're having a wonderful time, she wrote. Be safe. I wasn't sure if her telling me to be safe was an indictment of my general inhibition, or just a compassionate nod. Having a fine time, I wrote back, and began to follow it with another message that inquired as to why she was awake so late, but I backspaced and sent a single smiling emoji, the one with rosy cheeks. I think Carrie would have approved. Good, she said, without punctuation. And it was good, I thought. It was also good that she reached out, because I sincerely think I might have stayed in Glasgow and scrapped my plans to continue on to Budapest. But hearing from Siobhan and having the opportunity to show her my freedom of spirit, however fictional, reminded me it was necessary to push myself beyond idle comfort. There is also no direct train from Glasgow to Budapest. I didn't plan my continental travel very thoroughly. At the airport, I scanned a gift shop for suitable Christmas presents for my family, but all the souvenirs felt unimaginative. Tartan-printed golf balls and a tea cozy that looked like tiny bagpipes. I wondered if it bothered the people who worked in these shops to have to so pointedly lean in to their own stereotypes. Then again, what is a stereotype if not a tradition? What I bought instead was a dandelion soft drink, which was disgusting, and a British tabloid, which was disgusting. The paper caught my eye because I had recently consumed a double dose of a certain Tom Cruise performance, and there he was in grainy telephoto resolution on a movie set in the very city to which I was headed. Indeed, he was filming some on-brand action thriller in the Hungarian capital, and it occurred to me the photo was likely taken either just before or just after he'd done some of his infamous movie sprinting. I had decidedly few scheduled activities on my final leg of the trip, and I thought, maybe the greatest living film star will be one of the sights I see. Once again, Magnus was absent on the flight, but 
I couldn't enjoy the vacancy because an older gentleman with a whistling nose asked a crew member if he could switch seats. He seemed nice enough, but we didn't talk much. Instead, I watched planes, trains, and automobiles, which I'd never before watched while aboard any of the three. A feeling of solitude came over me when I entered this new place. Up to then, it had been my routine to gradually find my personal comfort zone within a foreign land by first consuming the most obvious tourist offerings. Helpfully, Budapest has a number of Christmas-specific things to attend, the Basilica Market, various orchestral performances, and I tried something called chimney cake, which is a cylindrical sugar dough that's in fact roasted over charcoal and was popularized in Transylvania, a place I once argued to Siobhan was fictional, which she knew was incorrect because she's smarter than me, although I'm pretty sure she's never had chimney cake, so I have that over her in worldliness. It was delicious, but I was feeling lonely again and I regretted leaving Scotland. I considered visiting the Shechnech baths, but even the beach tends to make me uncomfortable, and I figured that wasn't how I wanted to make friends. It was now December, and instead of being in hiding, I was beginning to feel hidden, and the difference was significant. There's a bit in Burl and Thurl where the characters are discussing the obscurity of other people, and the realization that even the people we know are only who they are to us, to us, and are otherwise strangers. Burl says, I won the Academy Award in 58. I'm in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof with Liz Taylor and Paul Newman. I have the Order of Lincoln, and no one can top my cabbage rolls. And you know who I am to most people, Thurl? And Thurl says, who? And Burl says, I'm the snowman narrator in a puppet show. And he's kind of bitter about this, but Thurl says, that doesn't make you a stranger, though. The snowman narrator is decidedly someone. And Burl says, I suppose it's apt if the artist is doomed to melt away eventually. Thumpity thump. And Thurl says, snowmen melt, but narrators exist as long as the story's still being told. And when I wrote that, I meant to say that people create art because they desire to be permanent, and art itself can last forever, only I vote lived my creation. And in Budapest, I was as obscure as I had been before I wrote the play. I remember the night I wrote that particular conversation because afterward I shared it with Siobhan and we read it back and forth while eating the blondies she'd made that day. I'll remember those blondies forever because... They were breathtaking, and I had wished they would never end. Purely because of my attitude, Hungary felt much like France. I forewent touristic ventures in favor of hanging back and watching Christmas movies in my room. But I was noticing an irritating habit cropping up in my lonesome, without a viewing partner, I was often drifting out of step with the films and reflexively picking up my phone and scrolling through the nothing. This was happening more since Siobhan had reached out. Maybe I thought she'd do it again. It was the middle of a dreary afternoon when the almighty Tom Cruise pulled me to safety, as he had so often done in these travels. I stumbled onto an article about a mythic holiday tradition of Cruise's where it said he mails out dozens of white chocolate coconut cakes to his friends and former colleagues. The cakes come from a California bakery called Doan's, and once you're on Tom's cake list, you're on it forever. Celebrities so blessed have discussed it in various talk show and podcast appearances, and by all reports, this cake isn't short of divine. Naturally, the article reminded me of Siobhan's coconut cake, which I realized then I might never taste again. And as great of a palatable loss as that would be, it represented infinitely more about the sudden absence of companionship in my life. It occurred to me this gifting of cakes has nothing to do with cake. It demonstrates self-awareness in Tom Cruise, an understanding of the novelty and amusement that comes with being deemed worthy by Tom Cruise. For a while, Siobhan deemed me worthy. I can't recall us fighting often, but I admit I'd been mopey for much of the summer and fall. I kept telling her, when it came time for our earliest Christmas traditions, I would snap out of it. She had been unusually busy all year. It wasn't just an excuse. And I guess I sort of thought Christmas would cure that as well. I booked the trip without consulting her because I wanted to make up for my million awful moods with a grand surprise. I think she was excited at first, but then I got really down again for several weeks and she got angry when I failed to congratulate her on the completion of a particular project on which she'd been focused for months. You haven't said anything about my projects, I defended. She said, unloading the dishwasher isn't a project, Lou. This was both true and 
a somewhat hurtful way of reminding me I hadn't been making a concerted effort to overcome my woes. She asked me if I ever thought about trying to write something, and I told her I couldn't write because I was too depressed, and she reminded me that writing something could make me less depressed, and I grumbled incoherently about the irony. Then she made pumpkin muffins while answering emails at the same time, and I went to bed. By then, it was the continuation of a long pattern. She'd try hard to help me, put me at ease, but I'm so hard to handle. I'm selfish and sad. The Tom Cruise cake article reminded me of the tabloid I'd bought at the airport. I fetched it from my backpack and brought it to my computer where I attempted to match the blurry stonework in the photograph with landmarks featured in the travel blogs I'd been using to plan my trip. I determined rather easily the shot had to have been taken from the chain bridge on the Danube promenade. I googled Tom Cruise Danube, and I found a Reddit thread shared only days before, which I had to translate but appeared to indicate the production was still underway, but had moved to a nearby river town called Koseg. With grief so deftly tracking me, I'd found my river to skate away on. I bought a train ticket for the four-hour trip the next morning, and I fell asleep watching You've Got Mail. Even though I'd never been on a film set, to visit even the outskirts of one felt like a decisive betrayal of my intention to witness exoticism. There was something so critically Western about my fiery need to be close to Tom Cruise, who was himself emblematic of my incurious insular world. But again, why deprive myself the chance to see something that so clearly interests me? Who else would I be aiming to please by sticking to only the activities recommended by travel directories? This was my trip. I was surprised by how close to the action I managed to get. Koseg is a real trench of a town, and idyllic but unconducive to discretion by virtue of its terrain. There was nothing the crew could do to prevent one from standing atop a hill and staring directly down upon the world's most purely formed movie star. Instead, they counted on the coolness of locals, not to blow it out of proportion. It wouldn't work for a minute if Tom Cruise made a movie back home, I thought. They'd be all over him. But it appeared to be working here, which, of course, I was only able to observe by being rather nosy myself. I saw one of the magicians from a past season of America's Got Talent in an airport once, and on the same trip I thought I saw Soon Yi at the Statue of Liberty gift shop, which in hindsight was almost too regionally on the nose to have been real. But my brushes with the rich and famous have been few, and even in this instance I couldn't tell you with complete certainty I saw Tom Cruise on my day trip to Koseg. It was a good 300 yards distance, and the man's back was turned to me. What I know for sure is that this person was an on-camera talent, and the only reason this film would have involved someone who looked so much like Tom Cruise would be if they were a stunt double. And a lot has been said about Cruise's general aversion to using stunt doubles, so I'm pretty sure it was him. But the spectacle was lackluster, and I wondered if I'd made a mistake by coming so far. What I could not have predicted was that I might spot another familiar face, one not from the magical dream world beyond the screens. I stood near a barrier and almost choked on my almond bar when a man standing next to maybe Tom Cruise turned to face me front on and revealed himself to be Magnus, the hippie to whom I'd sold Siobhan's plane tickets. He was tidier looking than I remembered him, his hair tied up in the back. He wore a lanyard around his neck and carried a clipboard. Whoever this movie star was, and let's just go all in on this, it was Tom Cruise, he then handed Magnus a paper coffee cup, jostled him on the shoulder, and walked off. Magnus appeared to say something to the actor, and then hurried off in the other direction. Before he disappeared out of my view, I spotted him taking a sip from the paper cup. Suddenly I cared as much about getting close to Magnus as I had Tom Cruise. I tried to take stock of where he was headed, and began walking in the same direction. I rounded the full perimeter of the set, scarcely able to get a glimpse of anything from opposite the many great white trailers and cargo crates. When I neared my original point of reference, I spotted Magnus again, this time walking outside the barriers and only a quick jog away. He still held the clipboard, but he had disposed of the cup. Hey, I said, trotting towards him. He stopped and took a moment to recognize me. Oh, dang it, he said. It's my travel buddy. Yeah, Lou, I said, pointing at myself, as if otherwise Lou might have just been a strange noise I make sometimes. Yeah, Lou, you made it, he said. Yeah, somehow, I said. What are you doing here? His face went 
stupid. Dude, you sold me your tickets. No, I understand. What are you doing here? With this, I gestured toward the movie set. Oh, I'm working. Funny how things come together. You kind of cleaned me out cash-wise, so I looked for odd jobs, took a few free rides, met a lot of nice people. Now I guess I'm a sort of production hand on this movie. Magnus, this is like a real movie, I said. It's a movie movie. Hey, you're telling me. Actually, I was telling myself. Magnus was terribly nice, but he kind of struck me as an idiot. And yet he was working face-to-face with the top asset of what was clearly a $100 million blockbuster film. He was better suited for selling homemade jewelry or playing percussion on plastic bins in a public park. How had he pulled this off? Do you feel like getting a drink? I asked him, and only because I'd just spent time in Scotland and had some residual gregarity left to expel. Yeah, I have some time now, he said, but I can't get too carried away because I'm due back here at dark. Magnus took me to a wine room called Toth, which looked at first to be discriminatingly elegant but welcomed us warmly, wariness and all. He asked me if I'd like to split a bottle. I said fine, and he ordered with confidence and a familiarity of the bar's menu. Magnus, the whimsical nomad from Facebook Marketplace with a hemp necklace and modest gauges in his earlobes was turning out to be really quite enchanting. The server uncorked our rosé, which in any other context would have felt out of season and never would have been my order anyway, but I was so clearly the fish out of water here and I was happy to follow a leader. Magnus muttered something in Hungarian and the server responded by placing the full bottle and two glasses in front of us. Magnus poured me only a sip, and I tasted it. Lovely, I said, and he smiled before filling the glasses to their middles. I'm sorry if I've seemed a bit elusive, he said. I fully planned to follow your original travel itinerary, but as so often happens when I've no one to keep me organized, I found myself on another schedule entirely. You don't owe me an apology. They're your tickets. You bought them. That's what I figured, and... When I got picked up by this movie, they covered my accommodation, so it wasn't exactly a loss. How did you get picked up by this movie? How does that happen? It's not really that strange, he said. I've worked on film sets before. These roaming productions are always in search of people who can do a lot of little jobs. They pay them well, and then they move on. It's a lot easier than carting a bunch of waiters and cleaners and security people all over the continent. So this is just a few days' work for you. In this particular case, actually, no. I guess they like me. Who likes you? Everybody likes me. Yeah, I get the feeling that's true. And I really did, just by the fact that he could say such a thing without coming across as arrogant. What I wanted to ask was if he meant specifically Tom Cruise had shown a liking in him. And I think he was answering me without using so many words. What about you, Lou? Magnus asked. Me? No, not everybody likes me. He laughed. No, I mean, what do you do? You mean, what do I do that allows me to run away to Europe for weeks at a time all by myself? Is that what this is? Are you running away? Well, which question do you want me to answer? Oh, that one for sure. Forget where you work. I laughed. Then yeah, I'm not an expert in human behavior, at least of all my own, but I think in a clinical sense, you could call this trip a runaway. Obviously, it's not work you're escaping if they're this flexible. I guess. So is it a person? I hesitated. Hmm. More like a lack of a person? Ah, now we're getting somewhere. Yeah, well, you can fill in the blanks, but long story short, I'm going to go home pretty soon, head first into a Christmas celebration, which for five years I've attended alongside the one person who could make me feel easy. And I've been a bit anxious about it, but I dare say I've gotten better at being alone in the last few weeks. That's good, I'm glad. So you have somebody to spend the holidays with. Yeah, I guess I'm one of the lucky ones. Although they won't be too thrilled to miss out on Siobhan's coconut cake this year. Is what it is, I suppose. Coconut cake? Said Magnus, lighting up. Is that all you need? Because I can get you a coconut cake. I admit I'd contrived our arrival at this subject. What do you mean? I asked, playing dumb. Well, it's a weird coincidence, but I'm sending out a huge order for coconut cakes today. All different addresses. I'm pretty sure I can add one to the list. Hang on. 
Magnus, are you suggesting that you've been personally tasked with the deployment of Hollywood's single most exclusive cake order of the Christmas season? He grinned and looked around. I'm saying, everybody likes me. That really is a coincidence now, isn't it? Magnus shrugged. Not really. The people around me need stuff taken care of, and I do it. That's how I like to live my life. You need a cake? I can get you a cake. You won't get in trouble? Eh, don't worry about it. It's Christmas. You say your name's Siobhan? Yeah. Obviously, if you had to run all the way out here to get her off your mind, it's a serious case. Allow me to help you remember there are other coconut cakes in the world besides Siobhan's. Thanks, Magnus. That's really nice. Hey, if you want to thank me, he said, go see this movie on opening weekend. It'll be in like a year. Bring your friends. It looks a lot better on me if I've worked on movies that were hits. Yeah, of course, I said. Shouldn't be an issue, though. It's got the pedigree. He shrugged. It's a crapshoot. Is that what you want to do long term, then? Work on movies? Oh, look who's asking the questions now. I think so, yeah. That's why I jumped at your Facebook ad. I knew this one was underway in Hungary, and I just needed an affordable way to get here. This is all because of you, my friend. Glad to have helped. Remember me when you're a big studio executive or whatever. I'll write you a screenplay. Is that what you do, Lou? Jeez, it's no wonder you're not running away from work. Writing's inescapable. I drained my glass and reached for the bottle. You'd be surprised. Magnus insisted on paying for the wine, which I found hard to reject because he'd so skillfully outclassed me. I was prepared to let his offer of getting me a bona fide Tom Cruise coconut cake remain only a hollow courtesy, but he brought it up again before we parted. He asked for my mailing address, and I wrote it down for him on the back of our receipt. He and I talked more about our favorite films and what we'd most like to do with the opportunity to professionally tell stories. I found Magnus to have a delightfully down-to-earth view on the differences between the sentimental and the saccharine, and the certain truth that the former still had its place in modern cinema. He was unencumbered by snobbery or consensus. He plainly seemed to love the movies, and I so enjoyed his company that I lost track of time and missed the last train back to Budapest. Instead, I was forced to fumble through a strenuous translation and book a night at a nearby hostel, which is a novel experience I probably should have allotted anyway, but I didn't sleep well and the Wi-Fi was useless. I woke up early and made my way down to the block where the film set had been, and like a dream, the production was gone without a trace. I wish I could say the remainder of my great European adventure was rich and rollicking, but it sort of fizzled out. I bided my time eating sweets and watching movies before returning to the airport, feeling no less adrift than I had been at my first emergence into Paris weeks before. It's isolating in airport terminals. The way home is always deadly compared to the anticipation of leaving for somewhere new. I thought about texting Siobhan. Something to the effect of, great trip, you'd have loved it, missed you. But I couldn't figure out how to phrase it without sounding either petty or clingy. So I considered Carrie, and I refrained from sending anything. I watched at least half a dozen movies on the plane. Among them, it's a wonderful life, because it was time. But they weren't all Christmas-themed, sneakily nor otherwise. Lengthy trips have a way of distorting your perception of time and space, in that the genesis of your journey feels so distant in history, and yet by the end, you've returned to the garden, and it's veritably unchanged. This was the case, at least, until I pushed my cart into the night air and was hit with brash coldness. I hadn't exactly been among the tropics these past several weeks, but... It was a much coarser temperature at home. I rode in a taxi and stared at the Christmas lights along the way, the uniform wreaths upon lampposts, the holiday billboards. Siobhan and I used to walk through neighborhoods at this time of year and assign a letter grade to the decorating efforts of homeowners. B for use of color and adornment variety, points docked for untidiness in the lighting. D minus for dismissal of cheer save only a single defiant electric candle in the parlor window. A-plus for awakening a sense of nostalgia. I managed to see friends in the following days, but kept myself busy with shopping and gift wrapping. I tried my best not to be preoccupied with the arrival of any potential deliveries from Doan's Bakery. 
It still seemed fairly hard to believe that I might have stumbled onto Tom Cruise's cake list without ever having met the man himself. It's Tom Cruise's list, after all. Surely he's checking it twice. Still, I had to consider how delightful a consolation it would be to replace Siobhan's iconic coconut cake with one so resplendent. I would arrive at my mother's and endure the odd barb about how it's a shame not having Siobhan's cake after Christmas dinner. And then I'd surprise them all with the most sought-after cake in all the land. That would fix things. But no such packages arrived. By the last minute before heading off to the family gathering, I was forced to contend with the reality of my deeply pathetic cakelessness. The house was perfect, as if from a blueprint, strategized, arranged, and immaculate as the womb it saluted. My mother lived for this initial unveiling, knowing its excellence, couldn't survive tossed boots and melted candle wax and spilled rums, and having to accept that her staging was in immediate wither beyond our hugs of hello. I entered the main room alone and took in the sheen of plastic holly berries and the twinkle of glazed birch trimmings, all postured carefully in a tall vase on the middle leaf of a stiff-from-underuse dining room table. There was neither a crumb for a mouse, nor a mouse for a crumb. A pine sprig out of place, or a macaroni pipe-cleaner heirloom in sight, nary the breathing room for a single critique. Down to the mysterious captivity of pristine, ambient light the home was exactly, and as every year ready for Christmas. But evidently I was earlier than expected and happened to arrive while my mother Prue was in the unholy latrine, unable to rescue an unfilled pie crust on the kitchen counter from my judging eyes. How dare she? Who's there? She hollered. It's me, I said. It's Lou. Hang on, she said in exasperation. There was a time when our dog Nev could have identified visitors. Territorial yaps distinguished knocking strangers, whereas her giddy paws patting against the mudroom floor would give us kids away without a doubt. These days, Nev rarely got up off the couch, though. She was still first to properly welcome me, with the squinting of her eyes and the outreach of her neck to invite scratches. She slowly drew her eyes closed as I neared my nose to hers. What are you doing here? said Mom, entering in a huff. Merry Christmas. I said. Hi, honey, she said, softening and kissing me on the cheek. Merry Christmas. Why are you here? Don't you still live here? You're early, though. I thought I had more time. More time for what? It looks amazing in here. Your father hasn't had time to put the lights on the banister. I'm sure St. Nick won't be offended. Yes, but you know your father. I do. Also, I have a pie still in its early stages. Well, that, on the other hand, is the very last straw. Don't mock, you know me. Yes, Mom, I know you both. Have you spoken to either of your sisters? Yes, they're coming together. They'll be on time. And is that everybody we can expect for dinner? This was not a well-disguised inquiry about Siobhan, nor did I treat it as such. Yes, Mom, I'm all alone. She reached forward to take hold of my bag and said, That's never been true, Louis and it never will be. Thanks, Mom. I got this. It's okay. Put it in your room then, please. I don't want any clutter. I know. Heaven forbid. Each member of the family had a different point of specific interest when asking about my recent travels. Dad wanted to hear about the people I met. My sister Lydia was curious about the accommodations. My other sister Margot wanted details on the attractions from country to country, and my mom, of course, asked about the food. They were all generous listeners and gave plenty of attention to my photos and stories about Carrie the Scottish bartender and my wassailing and, of course, my trip to Koseg, where I was pretty sure I spotted Tom Cruise. I considered mentioning the coconut cake I'd been promised, but I didn't wish to inspire any reminders of Siobhan's absence. After all, my cruise cake had never come, and mentioning it would only draw attention to our lack of a certain other beloved coconut cake. I have to assume they were thinking about Siobhan, too, but... Knowing the time of year was special for us as a couple, they had the courtesy not to go there. And it wasn't the elephant in the room or anything. For all the melancholy I'd been lugging around for what seemed like forever, I was feeling quite wonderful. The once spotless kitchen fell quickly into disarray, and by the time of after-dinner coffee, we'd all traded in our polite special occasion outfits for robes and pajama bottoms. 
It never takes long to remember we only keep up these traditions because that's what traditions are. To stop is to kill them. And then, what would loved ones even be to each other? When the dishes were done, the five of us and the dog sat fatly around the living room scrolling through Netflix and trying to decide on something we all could enjoy. The others seemed keen on a Christmas movie, but any they suggested I said I'd already watched. We settled on Jerry Maguire, which I swear to God was a coincidence. Before the movie started, Margot asked, Is anyone peckish? And we all were, somehow both completely full and with room for something sweet. It was our conditioning. There was a knock and Mom asked me to answer it. I told Margot to cut me just a taste of whatever the others were having, and I grabbed my wallet, assuming it was some kind of charity case at the door. The climactic reveal of my play, Burl and Thurl, is that this frank and vulnerable conversation the two men have been sharing, in fact, has not been live on the radio, as was implied. Instead, they've been sitting in a studio near inactive microphones, speaking freely until the time comes for them to transform into something more professional. Thurl says to Burl, You know, mothers and fathers all tend to think the Grinch's big song is sung by Boris Karloff. His is the household name associated with that production, and mine is left off the credits altogether. That's a gripe for another day, but generally speaking, he's more famous than I am, so I can ride in an elevator with a lady and her little kid, and neither of them will know that's my song. And I'm so brutally aware of the fact that I could break out into song and either make this child's day or scare him half to death, and I really don't know if I more relish the knowledge that I have that power or the fact that I have the self-control to almost never do it. And Burl says... There would be something strange about a grown man bursting into song on an elevator with someone else's family, no matter how deep and lovely his vocals are. And Thurl says, Thank you for saying that. And yes, of course. But what I mean to say is, I like knowing I've made my mark on what makes Christmas special for a lot of people. I don't need to be there in person if I'm there in spirit. That's my long-desired permanence. And Burl says, Then congratulations, you're in the business for the right reasons. Shall we do this interview or what? And Thurl says, Yes, let's. And we rigged a red light to come on at this moment, and the audience, who all along has been thinking, gee, I don't think this dialogue really captures what commercial broadcasting tends to sound like, suddenly realizes it hasn't been that anyway. Burl and Thurl have a stiff and ludicrously brief chat about what Christmas means to them, my love, and they give a plug to Thurl's new record before throwing back to the music. The red light goes dark, and they shake hands, exchange wishes of goodwill, and that's Curtain. At the risk of defining my own work, it's a play about being for each other what they need us to be. It's about the most important tradition of all, seeing and hearing one another. In a way, it was a charity case of the door, only it turned out that I was the cause. Siobhan looked beautiful, her headband holding her church curls in place and little snowflakes catching in her eyelashes. She was wearing her nice coat, the one I knew wasn't warm enough, but the car behind her was still running, and it was clear she wouldn't be out for long. She was holding a large brown paper bag, and it looked to be dragging her knuckles toward the porch. Hi, she said. Hi. <laughs> Merry Christmas, I stammered, stepping out from the frame and pulling the door to. Yeah, Merry Christmas. I wasn't sure if you'd be here, given you're so worldly now. Oh, sure. Yeah, well, no. I'll always be here at Christmas. I'd hardly say I'm worldly. You look worldly? I gestured at my sweats. I couldn't look more domesticated, I said with a chuckle. Do you want to come in? Oh, no, she said. I can't stay. I just wanted to drop this off. What is it? It's my coconut cake. I'm sorry I didn't get it here sooner. I wasn't going to make it at all, but I felt bad. You didn't have to... Why did you feel bad? Well, you got me a cake. It only seemed fair that we trade, especially since I know it's important to your family. What do you mean, I got you a cake? Siobhan gave me a look I hadn't seen in months, the one she used when she felt I was being deliberately obtuse. You didn't have an incredibly glamorous coconut and white chocolate cake sent to my work. No. No, I really didn't, Siobhan. Hmm, if you say so. It was clear she wasn't going to believe that I had no idea what she was talking about. She handed me the paper bag and said, Careful, it's heavy. Are you sure you don't want to come in and say hi to everybody? 
I'd like to, Lou, but I should get going. I just wanted to stop by and hand that off and, you know, wish you a Merry Christmas. Okay, I said. I'm glad you're well. Please give my love to your parents and to Liddy and Margot. I will. And enjoy that cake. It might be the last one I ever make you. Unless, I don't know, unless it's not. She winked, and I felt fine. Okay, will do. And you enjoy your cake, I guess. Oh, trust me, she said, turning away. I already have. It was groundbreaking for Siobhan to indicate someone else's baking was good. I returned inside and we doubled up on desserts because what other choice did we have? The movie was barely half over before I was asleep in the chair. The next morning I felt compelled to send a season's greetings to Magnus in a private message on Facebook. From what I could gather, he was on a new set in Australia, so I wasn't surprised to not receive a reply. But it meant I didn't immediately get the chance to ask him if he had found Siobhan on my profile and had the Tom Cruise cake sent to her office from my personal address. Exactly a year later, we did correspond back and forth, but by then I didn't especially want to know. I messaged him to let him know that I had seen the movie he worked on when we were both in Hungary. That was our deal, after all, and it arrived in theaters on December 25th. He wrote back, That's brilliant. Thanks a lot. I hope you brought your friends. Just one, I replied. An old friend. Someone I always watch movies with at Christmas. <laughs>